0: There's virtue in the soil. Over time, I'm sure most of you have observed the reality in our nation over time, and I think it's probably true throughout the Western world. I don't know if it's a universal phenomenon throughout throughout the globe, but certainly in the Western world there does seem to be a strong general trend, and I think it might be truly a generally universal phenomenon that it is out of rural areas that you find conservatism, both politically, religiously, and socially. That, that, and, and, and most of us can relate to that. For those who follow the political trends in just re- recent decades, that, that's a valid statement. That's a valid presumption. I mean, for those of you who like to chart presidential election maps and you see where Democrats voted and where Republicans voted and, and you look at other issues whether it's abortion or whatever the issue might be, you see a strong pattern, a strong general trend that social, religious, and political conservatives tend to be from rural areas of the United States of America and those liberal areas tend to be clustered in the cities, particularly the large cities. Now, that's an interesting phenomenon because it's so constant. And the constancy has gotten me to thinking about that and really is, in a sense, is a springboard for this study in which I think there might be something to this business about rural areas having something to offer that the large cities don't that is really positive. And that's really where we're looking. So as our beginning point, I want to look at some passages from Scripture that I think is going to establish this general trend. It seems that the Bible has a general pattern that associates cities with vice and casts rural areas in a better light. Now, it's probably going a little too far to say that rural areas are are, are completely morally wholesome, because that would, be, that would be taking what appears to be a general pattern and pushing it too far. Most of us can sit right now and think and say, well, golly, I know people who live in rural areas and their lives are a complete mess. And, and that's true. And at the same time, we can probably point to people who live in large cities and say, well, there's a person who's really a, a, a very admirable, godly, and noble person. I have a lot of respect for that person. And there they are living in a city. So there's going to be a lot of exceptions to this rule. A lot of exceptions, but the many exceptions don't, are not going to derail, they're not going to detract from, I think, a, 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 a trend line that can be seen in Scripture, and that can be seen in our experience, that may add some value and consideration for us, and choices that we make. And there is something about the soil, there's something about the soil that is important. The ground, and that which springs from the ground. And so that's really our study today, to look at that a little bit. <clears throat> but let's start with this. Let's consider some infamous cities from the Bible. And we can kind of make a quick trip through the Scripture. Let's start with Genesis chapter 11, one of the most infamous early urban centers is, a course, found in Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 4. Allow me to read for you quickly here. It says, And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. And we drop down, we know the story here. God undid their plans. God scattered them. And it says in verse 9, Therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of the earth, and he scattered them abroad. So the first infamous city that Scripture mentions in a negative light that I'm aware of is the city of Babel. And of course, we're going to end, in a sense, with the same city when we end up in Revelation. But if you'll hold for a moment, let's go on just a little bit into the book of Genesis, and we'll run across in chapter 13 another city. And this, of course, in verse 13, is the city of Sodom, when that verse tells us, "...the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly." A great and wicked city that was so iniquitous that God determined it had to be destroyed long before its natural demise. Now, there's an interesting passage. It's worth taking a little time to read, and this is in Ezekiel chapter number 9. Now, we find in the prophet Ezekiel an interesting passage here I'd like to read for you. It's Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. I'd like everybody in the congregation to open your Bibles, and we're going to read this We could actually stop right here and do a pretty detailed study and draw out of these verses we're going to read, verses 1 through 11 of Ezekiel 9, a great deal of information. There's a lot in here that teaches us about the um, eschatology, the times to come. There are things, there are a variety of themes that we can draw out of this. But I think this is a particular city that's worthy of, of observation because this is the city of Jerusalem, And while Scripture has many positive things to say about Jerusalem, we find that there are also negative things that God has to say about the city of Jerusalem based on the activities that are occurring therein. But for the sake of just exploring this passage a little bit, I'd like everyone to join with me and read this particular passage together Ezekiel 9 1 through 11. And as you think about the passage that you're reading, and we read about the city of Jerusalem, what we're reading here is a vision of the prophet Ezekiel. Now, by the way, when Ezekiel receives this prophecy, Ezekiel himself does not live in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, at this moment in time, he doesn't even live in the land of Israel. He had already been taken captive, and he lived in the, uh, a distant place by uh, a great river and a canal called Chebar. And there he was, taken captive with other Israelites, but he knew that back in the homeland, the homeland still existed, and there were other Israelites still there. And the city of Jerusalem had grown exceptionally wicked. The land of Israel was not much better. But there's this particular unique vision. It's a vision that Ezekiel sees. God gives him a vision of the city of Jerusalem and the coming judgment. Now, as we think about this particular city in this time of iniquity in the history of Jerusalem. This was a period of time in which Jerusalem was laden with sin and iniquity. You might think a little bit about how there might be some kind of parallels in our own time with our own lives and our own cities and our own nation and just think on it as we read it. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 9, 1 through 11, and we'll just touch base with this this chapter. Are you ready? Let's read in unison. Is everyone ready this morning? Ezekiel 9, 1 through 11. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a rider's inkhorn by his side, they went in and stood beside the brazen altar, and the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house, all the man clothed with linen, which had the rider's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, "Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem." Set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man that which whom the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. And he said unto them, defile the house, fill the courts with the slain, go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city, came to pass while they were slaying them. And I was left that I fell upon my face and cried, ah, ah, Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel in pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great; the land full, and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. And as for me also, mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. Behold, man clothed with linen by his side reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. All right, so here we see the city of Jerusalem is slated for great destruction. It's interesting that in this particular vision, God sets a mark upon those who are distressed about the sin. In verse number 3, we see a a mark on the foreheads of those that sigh and cry. That is, they're they're weeping, they are regretful, they are mourning the iniquity and the sin and the abominations that are around them. And after the mark has been placed on their foreheads, the destroyers are released. And the city is filled with the slain the blood is running, destruction is to the left and to the right, and only those that have received this mark, because they had in their heart the spirit of repentance and mourning over sin, they alone survive, and the city is destroyed. Now, this was In a sense, I believe we could argue that this may have been fulfilled. This vision was fulfilled not many years after Ezekiel received this vision. In the year 586, when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city and slaughtered most of the inhabitants, took many survivors away in chains, and Solomon's great temple was destroyed, the wall was thrown down, and the city was left in utter and complete ruin. So we find that Jerusalem can join the ranks of other infamous and iniquitous cities, such as Babel and Sodom. There are other passages and places, though, as we kind of return to our main theme now, And consider that that cities in general, God does not have a lot of positive things to say. For example, we won't read it, but if you turn to Nahum chapter number 3, or maybe perhaps, maybe we should read it, Nahum. It's actually a, a, a minor prophet that is often overlooked. The book of Nahum is a judgment upon the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And after the Assyrians were used to chastise Israel, God judged Nineveh, a great city. And in Nahum chapter number 3, it describes the judgment upon this cruel and wicked city. Nahum 3, let me read for you. It says, Woe to the bloody city! It is full of lies and robbery, the prey departeth not. The noise of a whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheels, the prancing of horses and the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is the multitude of slain, a great number of carcasses. There is none end of their corpses, they stumble upon their corpses. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, The mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms, and families through her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And it goes on and on. The entire book is essentially a prophetic description of the judgment God is going to bring upon Nineveh. Because of Nineveh's cruelty and iniquity, whoredoms, and witchcrafts. The very city that God used to destroy Jerusalem, or rather bring chastisement upon Samaria, and ultimately some chastisement upon Judah and Jerusalem, that very city, Nineveh, was in its turn destroyed for its own wickedness. Perhaps the most famous of all wicked cities is described in Revelation 18. You might find it interesting to read a little bit of the language of Revelation 18. This, of course, is Babylon, and there is, I believe, fair to say, a, a, a direct correlation between Babel in Genesis 11 and Babylon in Revelation chapter number 18. But the language of the description of Babylon shows that it is indeed perhaps the greatest and most wicked of all the cities in the earth throughout time. Let me read for you just a couple of verses. This is, destroying, this is a description of the destruction of Babylon, as well as a list of the reasons that Babylon is ultimately taken down. Now, an angel has this to say in verse 2, He cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. It has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit. In a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. That's worth noting that passage. The merchants of the earth are waxed rich because of the activities inside this city. Drop down to verse number 9. We'll read a little bit more. The kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her, lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants, here we see merchants again, the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. And then it tells us of the merchandise. Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, linen, purple, silk, scarlet, thine wood, vessels of ivory, vessels of wood, brass, iron, marble, cinnamon, odors, ointments, frankincense, wine, oil, flour, wheat, beasts, sheep, horses, chariots, Slaves and the souls of men is among the merchandise of Babylon. Well, <laughs> it'd be interesting, I suppose, to pursue just what is meant by all of this merchandise, especially the souls of men. Amen. But you can get the sense and the tone that this city was, is, shall be exceptionally wicked, perhaps among greater than all the wickedness of all the cities of the earth." Now, we could go on, and I could find other illustrations of negative things that God has to say about cities, and in general, those and the lifestyle of what happens in cities. Now, we should not construe that, I would probably need to get this out there, that although we can have all these negative imagery of cities it would be also incorrect and unfair to say that every city dweller throughout time and history is living in contrary to god's will for their life but in general we do see a pattern through scripture that cities and city life doesn't seem to be generally pleasing to god now in contrast let's look at some of the noble heroes of the Bible. And we think of the noble heroes of Bible fame that were called to leadership. We discover something that's interesting. In case after case, we find that each of them had to have an experience with either crops or livestock. That is, they had to touch base with rural life. Some of the greatest of the heroes of Scripture, whatever their origin, had to have some kind of an experience with crops or livestock. Again, I can think of probably a few exceptions, but there are so many for which this is true, I think it's worth noting. Now, we won't look these up, but you'll recognize them. If we go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, we discover that Moses had to spend time with flocks. And herds. Despite the fact that Moses had been reared in the urban centers of Egypt and knew all about economics, politics, and military leadership, God was not ready to utilize Moses until Moses spent time in the desert herding sheep. Why would that be? What was it that Moses could learn herding sheep that might be of value in leading his people Israel and in being a political leader and a military leader. There are many other examples. Consider Gideon. You might recall when we're introduced to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, Gideon was called, quite literally, from the threshing of wheat. He was actually in the middle of a harvest task. He was harvesting the crops from the land, quite literally in the middle of the task when an angel appeared to him. Gideon was a man of the field. And of course there's David. Famously, 1 Samuel 16 first introduced us to David. But again and again, when we think about David and what makes him famous, we again and again get glimpses of David's life as a young man and as a youth as a sheep herder. And having a connection to sheep that somehow prepared him to be Israel's greatest king. Here's one, Elisha. You can read about it if you take the time in 1 Kings 19. The first thing we find about the great prophet Elisha is that he knows how to plow. When Elijah, at God's instruction, said, I want you to go and fetch Elisha to fill your office. Elijah did so. And he cast his mantle on Elisha when Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, which seems like a lot of oxen to plow with. But at any rate, that's what Elisha was doing. He was plowing a field when he received the call of God. Amos a herder of sheep, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. I looked that up. I'm not exactly sure what sycamore fruit exactly is. I don't think I've ever eaten sycamore fruit. But that's how he made his living when God called him to be a prophet. And of course, in the New Testament, we can find the same general principle in Matthew chapter 4, the at least four of Jesus most well-known disciples. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, also had a connection, shall we say, to the natural world. They weren't exactly farmers, nor were they exactly sheep herders, but they were of a kin in the sense that they were fishermen. They were fishermen. They had to do, I'm not sure we would call fish livestock, but it's in the same realm. If you, I think we could probably fairly say that it's in the same realm. These were men who derived their living from the earth, From the natural world. So what is it about the earth and the natural world, and what is it about the cities that get in the way of a better life and a spiritual life? Let's look at the problem with cities. Now as I see it and reflect on it, I see three problems with cities. The problem with cities is threefold. Now, there may be other, additionally, but I'm just trying to look at it from a practical point of view. I see three problems here worth mentioning. Number one, <clears throat> inevitably, there's greater temptation exists because of a greater exposure to people from different backgrounds. Every urban center is a collection of people from different backgrounds, with probably rare exceptions. And that would be true in ancient times when you think of every ancient city that might be famous, Athens or Rome or, or medieval cities of London or Paris, or you think of the great modern cities of our time, Los Angeles, New York, modern London. Cities are always places where there are many people from many different backgrounds that offer greater temptation and human beings, what they are, being what we are, we are vulnerable to temptation. And the greater the temptations around us, the more numerous, the stronger they are, the more likely it is that many of us will stumble and even relish in the iniquities and sins that those temptations bring forth. Second, and this is a big practical problem, Different value systems inevitably collide. There are different value systems that enter in to an urban life. We could think in in our time, if you plucked yourself up from the rural Midwest and decided, I think I'm going to spend some time and live for six months in New York City, or Miami, Florida, or Los Angeles, or Seattle, or San Francisco, or any other large cities in the United States of America. Let's say Houston, Texas. You're going to see the same this pattern now. That different value systems are going to be present and are going to collide one with another. And wherever you choose to live, whatever borough or neighborhood you choose to live in in New York City, you'll probably not be too surprised to discover you've got a neighbor who lives who came from, well, I don't know, Vietnam or, or Syria or Iran or, you know, a dozen all kinds of places. India? They all have their own ways, their own languages, their own culture, their own lifestyle, their own diets, their own value systems. And so as you leave your little apartment, and walk around and go to the shop to buy your groceries or interact in the street, sitting next to them on your way to your job as you travel on the subway, inevitably you're going to interact with them. It cannot be avoided. And those different value systems that begin to collide are going to force you to accommodate one another. You have no choice. You can't say to the Muslim next to you, I really don't like that scarf you've got on your head, and yank it off of their face. You can't say (laughs) to the Vietnamese, who's just returned from their little shop, and they have in their little shopping bag some sort of a food that you don't care for. You can't say to them, that's disgusting, and grab it out of their hands and toss it out the window. You're going to have to put up with it. And they with you. So you're forced to accommodate with one another. And that leads to the next problem. As the value systems collide and you're forced to accommodate one another, there's going to be a compromise of values. There's going to be a compromise. It's going to begin to erode your value system unless you are very, very strong. Now, you might be. You might be very stiff-necked and strong-backed and say, I am not going to say to myself, Oh, it's okay if you want to do this or that with your neighbor. I'm going to maintain my disdain for them. And I hope they maintain their disdain for me. But that's not likely to happen. What's going to happen, most likely, is there's going to be a compromise in your value system. Perhaps a compromise in theirs too. But we don't care about their value system. That's not my job to worry. It's not my job to worry about the Vietnamese maintaining their own value system. Being true to Buddhism and all their habits and culture. So if theirs erodes, that's their problem. I don't care. But I don't want mine to erode. And so in an urban center, this is what happens. This is what has happened throughout time, throughout history. Now, then, it's a universal phenomenon. And of course, thirdly, we have a third problem. Actually, you might think, well, this is a very good thing. Greater opportunities exist for rapid wealth. All of us know this to be true. If you've spent any time as an adult trying to earn a living in a rural area versus an urban area, most of you are aware that is a general rule. Exceptions exist, of course. As a general rule, there are greater opportunities for rapid wealth in an urban area. But this does tend to be a corrupting influence. And those that choose to involve themselves in an urban area for that reason are going to find that this erodes their own spiritual and moral life. Proverbs 13, 11, if you take time to look that up, it warns us. Of, of, of how rapid wealth coming into, into your life can be a negative thing. Now, I mean, we're not condemning wealth. We're not necessarily condemning those who are successful. I'm, really, I'm not condemning the entrepreneurs who are successful and, and derive rapid wealth. But we can say that those who seek rapid wealth as a high priority of life that's another issue, and that needs to be looked at very closely. And because the cities have these greater economic opportunities, it can work against the spirit and the soul. Now, a couple of examples from history might be worth mentioning. turns out that, as, as, as I try to build the case that there's virtue in the soil, and that Scripture supports that general thought, which I'm not done building, it's interesting that other cultures have also noted this in time and history. And interestingly enough, the ancient Roman Republic recognized the virtue of a farming background. They recognized the virtue of a farming background. Now, one of the most famous heroes of the Roman Republic, he's not I wouldn't say he's the most famous Roman ever. We've all heard of Tiberius and Octavian and Julius Caesar and so forth. This name may not be quite as well known to those who read history and pay attention to these things, but there was a gentleman named Lucius Cincinnatus, and of course, the city of Cincinnati is named for him today. Lucius Cincinnatus saved the Republic twice. He was called from his farm to be a commander of the armies and save them in a time of crisis. Which he did so rapidly in a matter of days. And then he returned to his farm. He didn't do this once, he did this twice. He was twice offered dictatorial powers and he twice declined in 458 and 439 BC. Both times he said, I'm going back to where I belong, to my farm, to my garden. That's where I belong. Now, because of his example, out of that particular example, the, the Roman Republic, the Roman Republic recognized this kind of civic virtue. Now, the plebeian class, that is, the ordinary folk of Rome, are considered to really be the backbone of the Roman Republic. This class of people, the the plebeian class of people, these farmers, citizens, soldiers, they were considered the heart, the beating heart, of what the Roman Republic was. Until the Roman Republic collapsed under the emperors. When Julius Caesar became a dictator and unraveled all of this, and a series of emperors followed, and the great corruptive period of Roman history unfolded with all of the abuses and distasteful things that you think of when we think of the latter period of Roman history with the gladiatorial games and the slaves and the, and, and, and the corruption and the immor- immorality. That did not characterize the Roman Republic. That characterized the period known as the Roman Empire, which came much later. Now, another quick illustration from history takes us to Thomas Jefferson. Many may not be aware of this, but when George Washington became the first president of the United States, in 1789. He served two terms, and he had working for him in his administration several important and well-known men. One of them was Alexander Hamilton, and one of them was Thomas Jefferson. Now, the two of them, those two, Hamilton and Jefferson, really butted heads about a future vision of America. Alexander Hamilton envisioned America being a city, uh, excuse me, a, a nation Of prosperous cities. He himself, his background was from New York City, and was a, he was of a, a, basically you say, a a merchant. He was a merchant class. He had a sense for for how trade and and building and manufacture can build a, make, make a make a great city, and he thought a great nation. Thomas Jefferson had a different vision of America. He envisioned America not being a nation of large urban centers that were wealthy, but rather a nation of small farmers spread out across the continent. And every man had, and his wife, and every family had their own little acreage. And one of his, his favorite verses was, every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree. And he envisioned not a, a, a nation of biz big business, but a nation of little villages, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of small farmers, all prospering on their own land. That was Thomas Jefferson's vision. Thomas Jefferson believed there was something in the soil, something in the land, something being connected to the land, that brought forth virtue in a person. And he believed that it was essential for the prosperity of the future Republic of the United States that we be essentially a rural nation, not essentially an urban nation. Whose vision has won out? Well, for probably 150 years, Thomas Jefferson's vision of America prevailed as we went west Everyone had their own little plot of land, and it was, a, it was a vision and a dream. All newcomers to America, none of them said, oh, I hope I land in Boston and remain. Well, you know, the Irish people that landed in Boston, their vision wasn't to work in a sweatshop in Boston slaving away. Their vision was to come to America and get a piece of land. They wanted their 160 acres from the Homestead Act. They wanted their little piece, their, their own little... Their, their own little spot, their own little net nest. Jefferson's vision prevailed for a century and a half, perhaps, but they, the tide has turned, hasn't it? And now Hamilton's vision seems to be growing more and more dominant. And it seems to me, though, of the two men, one of them is a better vision than the other. One is more biblical. One is more wholesome, one is more desirable. And that's Jefferson's. So let's go a little further in this. So Jefferson championed the idea that the United States should encourage small farmers spread across the continent. And he really wanted to, to discourage the growth of cities. All right, so let's go a little further in this discussion. I want to uh, try to lay out the case that connection to the soil breeds in people a certain cluster of qualities. All right, it's going to breed in you and I. A cluster of qualities that are going to make us better people. Connection to the soil. All right, so here we go. This is my list. You know, so I it it may not be complete, and it may be an error, but for what it's worth, it's for your consideration. This is my list. Build this point. First off, a willingness to perform physical labor. A willingness to perform physical labor. Now, of course, this is going to discourage laziness. (laughs) It discourages slothfulness. A willingness to perform physical labor. Number two, and this takes us to the soil, a willingness to get dirty. A willingness to get dirty if you need to. To get dirty. Dirt under your fingernails. This undermines Pride. This undermines pride. How many of you have met someone who says, I don't do that kind of work? (laughs) I just don't do that kind of work. That's a prideful spirit, perhaps. Maybe they've got a reason, they've got a bad back or whatever. Maybe it's just simply pride, because they don't want to get dirty. Now, you might think that the first and the second are really the same, physical labor and willingness to get dirty. You might think that. I think there's a distinction, though, and I would, I would ask you to imagine, for those of you who are men, imagine, the, imagine a man who's willing to go to the gym and work very hard in the gym to build up his muscles, but he's not willing to go out into a field to get dirty. And I've met such men. I wouldn't say they're lazy, but there might be an element of pride, but there might be an element of pride because he takes a lot of, mm, there might be a bit of vanity regarding his own body. All right, well, moving along. Third, connection to the soil brings a need to nurture delicate plants and animals. There's a need to nurture that which is delicate and frail, and both with animals and plants, that's going to happen. This is going to build compassion. Compassion. In contrast to cruelty. Disdain. Discaring. Number four. This is quite important now. There's a recognition. A connection to the soil is going to build a recognition of the gap between effort and reward. There is a gap. That is, that is a time lag between effort and reward. That's a very important thought and something that is missing in our nation to some degree, particularly among those who are younger. Not all who are younger. But this fail to realize that there's a, there's a time lag between the effort put in and the reward that you get. You have to put in considerable effort for a long period before you get the payoff. In contrast to those who say, oh, I'm putting this effort in, I want the reward now. Okay, that doesn't work when you're connected to the soil. That doesn't work when you're dealing with plants and animals in the agricultural world, the world where things grow because there's a time lag. So what does that develop? It's patience develops patience. Next, and this might be the most important one. The last two are probably the most important. Connection to the soil is going to help us realize that there are factors that no one can control. There's factors that no one can control, that is, except God. No human controls all the factors. This fosters a trust in God. This builds a trust in God. Whether you're raising livestock, things happen. Whether you're raising crops, things happen. It might be the weather. There's just a variety of, of factors, though, that are in the hands of God and are not in your hands. So it presses and pushes one toward a trust in God. Now, all of these qualities, if we can discourage laziness and encourage hard work, undermining pride, which builds humility, building compassion, developing patience, developing a trust in God, these qualities, I believe, actually shift our focus toward God. Connection to the soil inevitably pushes us and prompts us and connects us in a way and prompts us to move toward God. That, and that's a good thing. Now, there's a passage here that I think speaks of this. And that's James chapter number five. So if you would, I encourage you now to return to your scripture and go to the book of James. I'd really like you to take, take just a couple of minutes. We're going to pause from our discussion and for those of you who are following along in the outline, and, and look at the passage in James chapter five a little bit. James chapter five, one through eight. So please open your Bibles. I, I ask all of you to open your Bibles and pay attention now. Uh, we're We're well into our Bible study. James five, I'd like to read for you several verses. Tell you what, I'll read verse 7 and 8, and then we'll kind of back up and notice a few things from some of the previous verses. All right, so it tells us in verse 7 and 8, James is giving an example of how our faith grows. And note the example that he brings forth. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, it's a farmer. The husband and waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. So there's the example that James builds. He says, look, you've got to learn to be a bit like a farmer. Someone connected to the soil who has to develop patience before he gets the fruit of the earth. He's waiting for the early rain, And he has to wait for the latter rain, and maybe some sunshine in between, or whatever it is. They have to wait, patiently, trusting that God is going to send the balance of rain and sunshine so that he has fruits of the earth. And then James says, that's what we've got to be like. Look at verse 8. He says, be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now, James is saying, there's the, there's the, you may long for the return of Christ. You're longing and hoping for Jesus is going to come back. You're going to have to be patient. But there's other elements of patience in our faith. You may long for a solution from God. You may long for your prayer to be answered, but you're going to have to be patient. Like the farmer who plants in one season, harvests in another season, and has all this time in between in which he has to trust that God is working with the rain and the sun, so that the prayer that was here will be answered in an excellent way here, you're going to have to be patient. So all of you who are thinking of something you want and are longing for and hoping for, a prayer request, a burden, a, 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 you know, some, some oppression in your life, some problem in your life that you want to be resolved, and you want it resolved as soon as possible, well, you may have to be patient, like the farmer, and continue to invest properly and rightly and take the activities between planting and harvest that make the harvest possible. While you're waiting for the sunshine and the rain, you may have to weed. You may have to do this and this and this. If you've got livestock while you're waiting after the calves are born or the lambs are born, and you're waiting for them to grow and be strong so you can sell them, you've got tasks to perform all along the way. So you've, you've got to do your part. and You've got to patiently wait. So there's a pretty strong message, I think, that James is trying to bring forward in our lives to, to draw this parallel. Well, there's other things we could draw out of this passage I really don't have time to, to look at. But let's go back to our outline and go to the next question. So what are the reasons that you and I should try to connect to the soil? Well, I I hope I've laid out a few thoughts that already have moved you forward. But to make it clear, I've got four reasons that you and I ought to really seriously consider how we can connect to the soil, how you and your family can connect to the soil. Reasons for reasons why you should. All right. Number one, this might be the most important. The qualities that I listed before. Up above, I believe that they're going to ready your children to receive the gospel of Christ. I think that they they, they cultivate the heart. They build in the heart and the soul and the emotions and the mind and the brain and the way they think and act. It's going to build in their life a circumstance to make them more receptive to the gospel of Christ. Now, God calls whom he will, and his election is sure, and you and I do not know who is among the elect, and we can't alter God's predestinating plan. But we can prepare the soils of our children's heart, and we ought to prepare the soil of our children's heart. And it could be that being a little more connected to the soil of the land might prepare the soil of their heart as well. Second, it builds a skill set for times of difficulty or crisis. And this, of course, is food production. It builds a skill set for times of difficulty or crisis. Food production. Now, people talk a lot about that in our congregation, and that's good. And then we should do that. There's a lot that could be said in this area uh, in, in terms of... of, of Preparing for the future and possible challenges in the future, and this is all very good. I will throw out one little caveat though. Um, we never want to take our trust away from God. Amen. Let me give you one little quick illustration from history where it, it, in this case, it didn't matter that you had the ability to produce food in your farm. Some of you may recall the story, In the 1920s and 30s, when Joseph Stalin came to power in 1928 through the 1930s and the heavy hand of Soviet communism was felt upon the people of Russia and the Ukraine. The people in the cities of Russia were hungry. Where did they get their food? Stalin sent his men to the farms. He sent them to the Ukraine. There's a reason why people in the Ukraine don't trust the Russians. That's another story. And vice versa. <laughs> Not that we're going to fix that. <laughs> but there is a reason why the people in the Ukraine don't trust the Russians. It's because in the 1920s and 30s, in this great agricultural belt where you had all these small, prosperous little farmers in the Ukraine... The men from the cities of St. Petersburg, well, by then it was Leningrad and Moscow, they came in with guns, and when harvest season came, they confiscated the harvest. Now, this is how serious they were about confiscating the harvest, so that the people in the cities didn't go hungry. Rather, it was the people of the land who did. They got, this is how serious it was, and this is a true story. The Ukrainian people were sent to the fields to harvest under armed guards. When the workday was done, they were carefully searched, quite literally every pocket. If a single grain was found in their pockets, they were killed. They were executed on the spot. Every grain of wheat was set aside to feed the people in the cities. So if you think about, well, what if we have a future calamity in this country? If you think that all the people in the cities in our time are dumb and think that, well, you know, I, I don't know where food comes from. I suppose chocolate milk comes from a black cow. <laughs> of course, they're not that stupid. Right. They know where the food comes from. And it could be they might have the power to take it right out of our hands. Right. Our trust has got, got to be in God. Amen. So don't, let, don't ever forget that whatever virtue value there is in preparing, and growing, and producing for ourselves, God is our ultimate resource of faith and trust when times get very very hard. Now it may not turn out that way. I'm not saying it will. I'm just throwing out that little story from history for a little food for thought. No pun intended. All right. (laughs) There's a couple more reasons though. Two more reasons why you and I should try to connect to the soil. It creates opportunities for family connectivity. It creates opportunities for the family to work together and do things together that they otherwise couldn't. And that's simply doing various and sundry chores. And the fourth one I think is worth mentioning. I think it actually could be very important as well. It promotes rootedness, which is the sense that I am invested in a geographical spot. I'm invested not just in general to this town or this community, but I'm invested in this piece of ground. I planted that tree. I've prepared this soil. I've fertilized that field. I remember digging that pond. These are things that you're, you're literally invested in the ground, and you say, this is our ground. This is my roots. This is my roots. This is my nest. As Job said, this is my nest. As far as I'm concerned, I'm going to die in my nest. (laughs) Are you invested geographically in a spot? Well, it's good to be so. All right, in the last part of our outline, we can run through this rather quickly. In a practical sense, of course, you do not have to be a professional farmer or rancher to connect to the soil. Most of us will not be professional farmers or ranchers. That's just not in the cards in today's economy and the way industrial agriculture works. Maybe some of us can be, but most of us will not be. But there are ways that you still can connect to the soil in a significant, in a significant manner, even if you're not a professional farmer or rancher. Now with gardening, essentially gardening is really an excellent thing because a small quantity of land is needed. You don't have to have a lot of land. Most yards are big enough to host a garden and a relatively small capital investment. You don't have to have a lot of equipment, a lot of expensive this and that. And so we've got the traditional vegetable garden, which is always a good place to start. Orchards and vineyards, that takes time. But not necessarily a great deal of land. A couple of acres, you could do a, a tremendous amount with a couple of acres when it comes to gardening. Greenhouses, and then two other areas that, that isn't food production, but, but not all connection to the land is only about food. Now, I put down flower gardening and landscaping. You say, well, that doesn't produce any food. It may not, but I think it might actually be worth considering for some people in a different sense. Just like man does not live by bread alone, all of us like things of beauty. And flowers are beautiful. Flowers are good. Flowers are wholesome. Flowers are normal and natural. If you say, well, that's a pretty flower garden, that's good and natural and normal, and somebody worked hard to make that flower garden. You say, look at that pretty yard with the shrubs and the trees and the hedges and so forth, all landscaped. That's good, that's noble, that's right, that's good, that's, that's, that's positive. And so if, if, if it turns out that you're motivated with flowers and shrubs and trees and landscaping, that's another way to connect with soil. It doesn't have to only always be about food production. Although food production, of course, may be a, a strong thing to consider. Of course, then there's livestock. Now with livestock, usually more land is required and a little bit more capital investment. Now, we've got chickens and other avians. That's a relatively small and easy way to get started. But you've got sheep, goats, sheep and goats, then you've got cattle and horses. The larger the animal, the larger the land investment, and the larger the capital investment. If you've got cattle and horses, you're probably going to need a tractor. You're going to need more land. Two acres isn't going to do much if you've got cattle or a horse your horse is gonna get pretty hungry if all you've got is two acres. <laughs> but if you've got more land, that's a good option as well. And finally, there's timber. Now, timber's interesting because the way I see the timber industry on a local level, on a small scale, and I'm not talking about industrial timber companies like Warehouser. I'm talking about small timber operations often other people's land can be accessed. You may not really need much land. Now, first of all, there's firewood for home heating. And, of course, then there's the production of actual lumber if you have a mill. Now, the firewood for home heating is worth considering. And it's something that I remember this congregation used to talk a lot about. And I don't know how many homes are heated with firewood now. But... um, I think it's worth worth consideration now as we kind of wrap this all up it's important to understand look you can't do all of this I would suggest that you start small and make your efforts sustainable a sustainable effort biting off more than you can chew and manage with a lot of enthusiasm and then dropping most of it isn't going to get you very far you need to start with something that you have some confidence in, and make the effort to make it sustainable over time, and then do more later. Now, we're at a season of the year, but I think it's right and proper for us to think about this connecting to the land. This is the month of February. Spring is arriving. I would think it would be a great blessing to this congregation if at the end of 2023, at the end of our growing season, seven or eight months from now, in, say, November, you can look back and you say, you know, I did more in 2023 than I did in 2022. I think that's going to be positive and good for you, for your children, and for our congregation, for our church community. Well, thank you for your time. May God bless you. I think there's virtue in the soil, and I pray that all all of you will give it some consideration. Thank you. God bless you. We are finished.